Welcome. We are here again at our study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and we are going to be looking at Philippians 1, verses 7 through 10 this evening, Lord willing. Glad you're here with us, and let's begin with prayer. Father, we are grateful, very grateful for your word, because it is that which brings us back consistently to who you are and what you have done for us and who we are in you and what that means in terms of our lives in this world, in our day-to-day living, whether we're working, whether we're relaxing or recreating or whatever we may be doing, we know, O Lord, that you are with us and that your word guides us. So we thank you for that. We pray that tonight as we look at these verses uh, in the epistle to the Philippians, that you, by your Spirit, Lord, would encourage us and that you would strengthen us to walk in the footsteps of the Messiah. And Lord, I pray for each of us in our respective communities that as we are part of uh, whatever community we are in, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those who enhance and uh, and uh, help build up others within our local communities. Father, that others may see that we are walking together with you and that you are guarding us and keeping us for your good and for your glory. So we bless you for all of these things and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, we're going to read the entire first chapter of Philippians and we're reading in the ESV, English Standard Version, uh, this evening. Okay? Paul and Timothy, servants of Messiah Yeshua, to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Messiah Yeshua. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Messiah Yeshua, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Messiah, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Yeshua Messiah to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for the Messiah. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Messiah from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Messiah out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Messiah is proclaimed, 
and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Yeshua Messiah, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Messiah will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Messiah, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Messiah Yeshua because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Messiah, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Messiah you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So I appreciate the uh, uh, English Standard Version, the ESV. It tends to be uh, a good a good translation. And uh, I, it's, not my, it's not my choice, but that's probably because I'm a little more used to the New American Standard Bible. And that's what I use as we go through these notes. So it's a, a very intriguing chapter, isn't it? Uh, with all of the things that it brings... And even as we, in our own world, live in some measure always of uncertainty as to what will happen next, whether it's in our country or in other countries, and yet we have this clear, solid, confirming reality that God is in control and that it is our duty to live for Him and to uphold His glory and to be witnesses of His grace in the gospel. And so that is that is the core of what Paul is talking about here in this first chapter. So verse 7, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you, about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. When I <laughs> when I first read this again, uh, as I was working through it. And uh, the, the translation about you all is a good translation, but it reminds me of something that we would hear in the south of America, <laughs> y'all. But at any rate, maybe that's how they read it when they read it. All right, what does he mean? For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Paul begins this verse with a word, kathos, which has as its basic meaning, just as. However, when this Greek word kathos begins a sentence, it carries the sense of since or insofar as. Thus, Paul uses this to connect his words in this verse back to the previous context in which he gives thanks to the community at Philippi 
for their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. It, you see, I mean, he's uh, he's remembering his time in Philippi. He forged real friendships, real communion and congregation with those who were there, those believers. And that remains with him. And so he talks about this. He says, it was only right for me to do this because of our relationship. He gives them his thanks for participation in the gospel from the first day until now. It is because of their living out their faith in Yeshua, shown not only by their steadfast life of caring for each other, but also by their willingness to aid Paul in the work Yeshua had given him to do, that Paul is confident of their eternal standing in God's grace. I, I think this is an overarching reality in this passage. And throughout the scriptures, and particularly in Pauline uh, epistles, that there is never this sense that our faith is simply in what we have agreed with, what we have considered or thought or said in terms of accepting Yeshua as our Savior. Our faith is not based upon a one-time raising of the hand or going down the aisle or saying yes to God. Our salvation is made clear and secure, that is, our faith in the Messiah, by how we live, how it changes our life, how we grow continually to find those things in our lives that need to be jettisoned and done away with because they are something that God uh, hates, that is, the sinful selfishness, the sinful nature, allowing the sinful nature to take precedence in our decisions and our choices. No. See, it is our subduing of that sinful nature, our walking more and more to be like the Messiah, that is the sure fruit of genuine faith. So it is because of their living out their faith in Yeshua, shown not only by their steadfast life of caring for each other, but also by their willingness to aid Paul in the work Yeshua had given him to do, that Paul is confident of their eternal standing in God's grace. He says, I am confident of this very thing in the previous verse, that the one who has begun this work in you will continue it, will perfect it, will bring it to pass according to his purpose in Yeshua Messiah. Moreover, it is that God always completes what he has begun that forms the basis for Paul's confidence regarding the genuine faith possessed by the Philippian believers. Isn't that an important theological truth so clearly laid out in the scriptures? God is never one who begins something but doesn't finish it. Now, those of us that have worked in workshop and uh, worked with wood or worked with metal and so forth and we've done things in the house, whatever, it's inevitable that there are things that we never finish on time or we maybe are continuing to have to finish. We in our finite abilities, sometimes begin projects that we don't seem to finish as we ought to. But that's not the case with Yeshua. That's not the case with our Father in Heaven. It's not what the Spirit does. What the Spirit begins, He always finishes. And so that is exactly what Paul is saying. 
the life of faithfulness assures Paul that he is right, and it is the word dikaios, we get our word righteousness from that uh, word group. He is right in his assessment of the believing community in Philippi. Why? Because they have continued to serve him, to help him, to encourage him, and apparently to encourage one another. So once again we see from Paul's words here that it is the life that progresses in godly obedience and holiness that is the mark of true faith and the life that it produces. Now I'm not saying that there isn't times when a true believer may uh, make wrong decisions, may slip back into something that he knows or she knows is wrong. But inevitably, if that takes place, there will be conviction. And inevitably, there will be a return and repentance in a seeking God's forgiveness and coming back to be what that person ought to be. But all too often, it is the case that people separate confession of faith from a life of faith. But the genuine root inevitably brings forth genuine fruit. And that's just a good uh, metaphor that the scriptures use. It talks about spiritual fruit in our lives. Well, apples don't grow on berry bushes. Bananas don't grow on apple trees. The point simply is obvious that whatever is in the root is what produces the fruit. So what is the root of our faith? Where do we find our genuine root planted? We find it in the Messiah Yeshua, in His teachings. We find it in the Scriptures. We find it from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. We find God giving to us the very picture of the fruit of a, of a redeemed life. And we seek to know, is that what we find in our lives? When we compare what we are doing, what we're thinking, how we're acting, how we react, are we bringing forth fruit that proves who we are in the Messiah? So the genuine root inevitably brings forth genuine fruit. Where there is no consistent spiritual fruit in a person's life, there remains a question whether the true root of salvation exists. Now, I'm not saying that there's something, some measure that we can say you have to progress some, you know, by this measure every so often. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not, but there is a sense in which we should, first of all, judge our own progress. Are we making uh, progress over the sins that easily beset us? And are we becoming more and more able to walk by the leading of the Spirit and to do what the Word of God would tell us to do. So we have numbers of verses that we could bring to bear on this subject. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. You can see how Paul in this verse in Romans 6.22 weaves together three things. Freed from sin, which means what? We're owned by God. We're enslaved to God. So, you desire your benefit. What? We desire to be what he wants us to be. That results in what? Sanctification. And what is the ultimate goal of faith, regeneration, and sanctification? It is, of course, eternal life. 
We read in Hebrews 12:9 through 10 and verse 14, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. Pursue peace with all men. And, we can add the word again, because it's clearly meant, and pursue sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. So there needs to be a a hunger for progressing in what God wants of us and making that more and more the norm of our lives. Again, we read in 1 Peter 1.15, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So if we have been called by the Spirit of God, if we have been drawn by the Spirit to confess our sins, and to believe in the redemption that has been made for us in Yeshua. If that is the case, then we will hunger more and more to grow in a way spiritually so that we can be good examples of who our Savior Yeshua is, that is, becoming more and more like Him. The New American Standard translation of the phrase, It is only right for me to feel this way about you all, could be a bit misleading based upon the translations to feel this way about you. It is only right for me to feel this way. Granted, in typical modern English idiom, to feel this way involves the general sense of one's perception and understanding of a particular situation. You know, we say, well, oh, that makes me feel happy. That makes me feel sad. So we we use that terminology, and, and I'm sure that's why the NASB did as well. You see, um, but the next phrase in our verse makes it clear that Paul is describing what he has come to know and rejoice in based upon the service the Philippian community has rendered to him as well as to one another. In other words, it's not just a feeling if we can uh, isolate it that way. That's not what the text is saying even in the New American Standard Bible. It means that he knows for certain that he can be certain about the Philippian believers, because of their life and because of their willingness to engage with him in this work of the gospel. They have shown the reality of their faith through their faithful service to the Lord. And this is not simply something Paul feels, but that he knows with surety. So what he's giving them is saying, I have every right to, to hold you in high regard because of what you've done, because I have you in my heart. Here Paul describes that his assurance of their standing in faith is based upon what he knows to be true. For in the Semitic mindset, the heart is the place where one's thoughts reside, as well as the source for the motivation which fuel one's actions. All too often in our our society, we think of heart as the place where you feel, where you have emotion and so forth. Well, there's a certain sense that that uh, there's there's an overlap there in the Hebrew as well. But generally speaking, the heart is considered in the Semitic um, way of of thinking the place where the thinking actually takes place. The Hebrews didn't think of the mind, the head, as the place where thinking was. It was in the chest, in the heart. 
and as we'll see as we go along here, the lap uh, uh, or the entrails, the entrails, the inward uh, part of our stomach and so forth, and uh, our groin and whatever. I know that sounds a little awkward, but in the uh, Greek perspective, that's where you do your feeling, and in the Hebrew. Uh, that's where you feel things, which makes sense. When we're not feeling well, oftentimes we get stomach aches. Uh, when we're hungry, where do we feel that hunger? We feel it in our midriff. And so uh, you can understand why that would be used, and we'll see how that happens in the upcoming verse. But he says, because I have you in my heart. Here Paul describes that his assurance of their standing in faith is based upon what he knows. Why? Because heart is where you do your reasoning. In the Bible, in the in the uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures at large, the heart is where one does their thinking, their considering, and making their choices. It uh, as well as the source for the motivation which fuel one's actions. Here are a few verses which clearly show that in biblical language the heart is viewed as the place where one's thoughts and knowledge reside, as well as the source from which one's actions proceed. So when you think to do something, from a Hebrew perspective, it's in your heart. And that's what motivates you to do it. Therefore, when the biblical uh, language talks about having a pure heart, it's talking about having one's mind, decisions, choices, aligned with the purity that pleases God. Here are a few verses. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. Not in his head, <laughs> in his heart. Okay? So, keep that in mind when you're reading the scriptures and it's talking about various functions of the heart. In Psalm 37:31, the Torah of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. What does that mean? He considers, he thinks about, he meditates on the Torah of God. And where does that meditation take place? In his heart. And then Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Thus, for Paul to state, I have you in my heart, does not negate the close companionship he enjoyed with them while he was with them, but it emphasizes that true companionship rests upon what is true and right, not merely on one's emotions or desires in a given moment. Indeed, when Paul can state that he has them in his heart, it indicates his true thankfulness and joy in the vital role they were fulfilling in enabling him to serve the Lord even in prison. Now, it's interesting because we're, we're not entirely positive where Paul was imprisoned in this Roman imprisonment. There are different ideas on that, but there probably is one uh, suggestion that it was in a very deep, dark, and damp part of uh, uh, almost, uh, you know, dug into the ground kind of a prison. And if that were the case, you can imagine the uh, what kind of environment Paul would have been living in. For years. Well, whatever the conditions were of the prison in which Paul was confined when he wrote this letter to the community in Philippi, we know for certain that prisons in ancient Rome did not provide food and other necessities for the prisoners. It was not uncommon then for a prisoner to die in prison. 
if he had no one to bring him food or water or whatever. Now, in this case, it's quite certain that Paul was awaiting a trial. He didn't know whether the trial would go in his favor or whether he would be sentenced to death, but nonetheless, he was probably in a place where it wasn't as terrible as it could have been, but even in that place, they were not providing him with food and so forth. Thus, a prisoner such as Paul relied entirely upon family and friends to bring food, clothing, and other necessities during his incarceration. So, the very fact that they sent Epaphroditus uh, with these kinds of things, and, and in Epaphroditus undoubtedly uh, collating with other uh, of the uh, believing communities to help uh, bring the necessities for Paul. Surely, the Lord urges his people to care for one another. And this includes those who have been instrumental in teaching and leading the community in the ways of God's truth and holiness. Surely, it is a very real expression of love and gratitude when those who labor in the word and teaching are shown to be appreciated by the kindness extended to them. And Paul, in the dire situation in which he resided, must have felt gratitude beyond his ability to fully express. Indeed, he says, he says elsewhere that the one who teaches is worthy of double honor. So that would mean helping that person who is a teacher to sustain his uh, living without having to have uh, work on one hand and then carrying the load of teaching and shepherding and so forth on the other. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't do both. Some of us have done that on a regular basis. In, in years past, and some still do it today. But there is a sense in which the one who teaches is to be valued, and they valued Paul, and they brought him and cared for him, in, in, uh, brought him what is, were his necessities, and cared for him during a time when he had no other option. And so you can understand why he was so, uh, uh, had such gratitude towards these believers. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. I just think that's an amazing statement. You all are partakers of grace. And we'll see that that word partakers has a, a, a real kind of everyone is on the same level. Not only was Paul grateful for the kindness shown him while in the darkness of prison, but he also points out the fact that the Philippian community of believers accepted and cared for him, him even though he was rejected by many others. For he was rejected on account of his open confession of Yeshua and his obedience to the Lord in welcoming both Jews and Gentiles as having an equal standing before God through the redemption purchased by Yeshua in his death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession. We know that when Paul received the Gentiles in, and taught that that is what Yeshua intended, there were those who considered him to be a traitor. There were Jewish communities who said, no way, we're not allowing the Gentiles to have equal uh, share of partaking in uh, you know, the Shabbat and in the Torah and so forth and so on with us. No, it was given to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. That's not what the scriptures say. And that's clearly not what Paul taught. He, a Jew of Jews, if we can put it that way, right? As he said himself. 
And yet he accepted the Gentile believers as equal participants in the very grace in which he stood. He says, you all are partakers of grace with me. And he's not talking simply to Jewish people in, in, uh, in Philippi. No, in fact, the majority undoubtedly were non-Jewish. So you can see why there were those who wanted nothing to do with him because of his stance of equality between Jew and Gentile. And now he's in prison and these undoubtedly many Gentile believers were assisting him. What did that do? Well, that caused perhaps the Jewish believers to look at the uh, believers in Philippi and saying, oh, you're one of those. We don't want anything to do with you. In other words, they were partakers of grace, but they were partakers also of the stigma that had come upon those who were truly teaching the gospel. The defense of the gospel means to be willing to stand for the truth of the gospel and to be able to show others why the gospel, that is the good news of salvation in Yeshua, is divinely revealed in the scriptures and thus to proclaim it as the only means by which a sinner may be given eternal life and unending fellowship with the Creator Himself. We will encounter this phrase again down in verse 16 of our chapter. The word defense translates the Greek apologia, from which our English word apologetics is derived. So that's when he talks about a defense. He's talking about showing people how what the Bible says and what Yeshua has taught is indeed true. Biblical apologetics is the field of study in which logical arguments are formulated to show the trustworthiness of the scriptures and the message of salvation they embody. And of course, when we're talking about apologetics, what is the the cornerstone of apologetics for those of us who are uh, uh, truly followers of Yeshua? It is the resurrection. If Yeshua was crucified on a cross, and if three days later he resurrected from the dead as he promised he would, then surely he is the one who controls all things. (laughs) He is the one who is life itself, and everything that he has said is true. And so the uh, apologetics of the scripture is to show the historicity to show the continuity and to show that clearly these are words that should be received. So here we see the coupling of divine sovereignty and salvation combined with the means or method by which God has ordained his sovereign plan in saving sinners to succeed. You see, people get upset when we talk about the sovereignty of God. They think, oh, you just mean God's going to do it and we don't have to do anything. No. Throughout the scriptures there is this combining of God's sovereignty and the means by which he has ordained his sovereign plan. And what does that mean? That he uses us to take the gospel and to give it to others. This And this method is the necessity to have the gospel proclaimed in the world by those he has saved. Surely, in one sense, the gospel needs no defense, for it embodies the very heart of God's truth. Yet he has ordained that the life-giving message of the gospel should be taken to others through human agency, strengthened and energized by the Spirit who indwells all believers. God could just save anybody and he wants to save. He could do it without having anyone talk to them. Of course he could do that. God can do all things. 
But that has not been his plan. His plan is that we would take the gospel. We would be co-workers with him to bring about his ordained plan. And somebody might say, well, what about somebody you know in, uh, in the heart of Africa who's never heard the gospel? How, how you know, <laughs> listen, God is not, uh, his hand is not short at all. There are story after story of how people in isolated countries have come to the truth of the gospel through means we could have never imagined. And yet there were those who were willing to write and to send and to go to learn the language and to tell them of his grace. So he has ordained that the life-giving message of the gospel should be taken to others through human agency, strengthened and energized by the Spirit who indwells all believers. So even as Paul considered himself to be a servant of God to defend the gospel, so all who are born from above and given a new life in Messiah are servants of the Lord to bear the good news of the gospel to a lost world. I just challenge you to begin to look for opportunities to talk to somebody, maybe somebody you've never met, or maybe it's, a, I don't know, a neighbor or someone that you, you know fairly well to open the way, to find a way to begin to discuss with them what it means to know God in truth and to be assured of life eternal with Him. Well, that's what we are to do. We are partners together with God in bringing about His ordained and sovereign plan. Now, if one is not willing to do it, God will use another. But what a great opportunity and joy to be partners with God in bringing about His eternal plan. But what does Paul mean, secondly, when he writes of the confirmation of the gospel? How do you confirm the gospel? The Greek word translated confirmation is bibeosis, found only here, and in Hebrews 6.16. In the Greek phrase of our text, the defense and confirmation of the gospel, now I'm giving you some grammar here, so bear with me. There is only one definite article, that is the word the, governing both defense and confirmation. It says, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This construction in the Greek is a very... Uh, well-documented construction indicates that Paul intends his readers to see that the two terms are to be understood as forming a certain unity. It's called the Granville-Sharp Rule. And so when you have one article, the, and it uh, constrains or is attached to two other nouns connected with the word and, then it means that these are to be viewed as a unity in a way that they cannot be separated. Well, what then does it mean to confirm the gospel? First, Paul does not intend us to understand his words to mean that the gospel message is dependent upon mankind affirming it, for the gospel is confirmed as true whether a person receives it or rejects it. As Calvin notes, here, however, someone will inquire, whether the confirmation of the gospel depends on the steadfastness of men. I answer that the truth of God is in itself too firm to require 
that it should have support from any other quarter. For though we should all of us be found liars, God nevertheless remains true. So, it doesn't mean that we, that we make it true. It already is true. But what Paul teaches us here, in speaking both of defending and confirming the gospel, is that there is both a positive and a negative confirmation, and they are united in meaning that both function together to proclaim the gospel as God intends. The defense, apologia, or the apologetic aspect of the gospel, is the negative part in the sense of removing obstacles that are thrown up against the gospel, as, for instance, showing proof of the historicity of the biblical accounts to answer those who claim the Bible to be fiction. Now, of course, one of the largest things that we confront on a regular basis is this whole issue of God as creator. They say, well, it's just impossible. Come on. Do you really think that all of a sudden God just spoke and everything came into being? Well, the question is, do you know who God is and what he is like? But then we can begin to uh, try to tear down some of that argument. We can ask somebody, well, can you explain to me exactly what light is? They say, well, I'm not a scientist. So I say, well, why don't you go and study it and see if you can tell, uh, if some of the sci uh, scientists will tell us exactly what light is. Well, it's electromagnetic radiation. That doesn't tell us what it is. Is it particles? When it's sh shown between two large magnets or a magnetic field, it tends to bend to one or the other, indicating that it has a charge. But then when we pass light through a prism, it breaks it into various colors, which tells us that it has wavelengths. Well, is it waves or particles? <laughs> There's been all kinds of ways for people to try to explain this, and they just haven't been able to. So you mean there are things that we have every day and we count on every day and we use every day that we can't explain that it's beyond our understanding? Yes. So, can God do miracles? Yes. Prove it. <laughs> you see, we can't prove it by empirical uh, methods necessarily. But what we do in apologetics is to take down this argument that that just doesn't make sense. Well, there are plenty of things in our own world that we can't fully figure out. So that's taking down a negative, right? If you understand what I'm saying here. Showing proof of the historicity of the biblical accounts to answer those who claim the Bible to be fiction. The confirmation part, the bibliosis, uh, is the positive part showing how one's life is changed and one is enabled to fulfill life's greatest objective, that is, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When you hear testimonies of people who have uh, led a very, very sinful life, and then by God's grace they came to faith in Him, and we see their lives change dramatically. Uh, when I've talked with people who have been incarcerated for years for uh, terrible crimes they committed, and when they were finally released from uh, that prison, but in prison they had come to faith in the Messiah. They were saying, I know at least one or two that have said to me, I'm so grateful that the Lord put me in prison because it was there that the gospel was given to me. And it has totally changed my life. Yes, that's the positive aspect. It is the, that positive aspect showing how one's life is changed and one is enabled to fulfill life's greatest objective, that is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. 
It is the testimony of a changed life, a life that honors God, that confirms the power of the gospel. And I know that we could spend a lot of time talking about people we've talked with or heard who had uh, wonderful testimonies of what God did in their life. Well, that's what Paul's talking about. He saw this in the Philippian uh, community. He saw people who undoubtedly were idol worshippers and very much entrenched in the Greek uh, religions of their time and worshipping the false gods of the Greek culture. And that, yet they came to faith in the Messiah. God changed them and drew them. And their life was proof that the gospel has power. So Paul goes on to say, you all are partakers of grace with me. Here we see an excellent example of the equality of all who were in Messiah. For Paul refers to the believers in Philippi as partakers of grace with me. The Greek word translated partakers is uh, soon koinonos, which is the preposition soon, which means to associate with or to accompany, or simply to be with, and koinonia, fellowship, having mutual interest, close relationship. In using this term, Paul puts the Philippian believers and himself as equals before God, equal in his love, equal in the gospel, and equal partakers of the gift of God's grace. While within the body of Messiah there are a variety of gifts and ministries, even the celebrated apostle teaches us here that we are all equal and sharing the gracious gift of God's grace and salvation. It's often easy to put a teacher or to put a leader or to put someone who has done wonderful and great things on kind of a pedestal and kind of look and say, wow, look, you know, uh, so forth. I got... I get to talk with him, or I get to talk with her, or whatever. Well, we understand that there's, we understand that within human relationships, but the reality is, is that all of us, from, from the new believer, from the child who believes in, in, in Yeshua, to the seasoned teacher, and or whoever it may be, that we all are on the same level. Why? We all have been saved by the grace of God through His mercy, and through what Yeshua has done for us. And Paul emphasizes that here, when he says, you all are co-workers with me, if we could put it that way, of grace with me. We have the same standing before Yeshua, and we are equally in Him. He goes on to say, For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. When Paul states that God is my witness, he is emphasizing that what he is about to affirm is absolutely true and he is unveiling his true thoughts and desires for his readers. We see him using similar language in Romans 1, 9-10. Uh, for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Here, Paul is a true model for all who are in any leadership position within a local assembly of believers, for he has those to whom he ministers always in his thinking, his desires, and most importantly, in his prayers. As we will see in the following verses, Paul states, How I long for you all, using the Greek word epipotheo, 
which is the co uh, common verb patheo, that is to have a strong desire or to strive after, but is even strengthened more by the addition of the preposition epi. It is used by Paul seven times of the nine times it is found in the apostolic scriptures. So we see that it, it's a word that he likes, highlighting once again his constant desire to serve those God had given him the opportunity to lead and teach. He says, I have longing for you. I have this strong desire for you. All of us who are in leadership positions need to long for the growth of those we lead, to pray together for them, to seek to help them, to seek to guide them, not for our own benefit, but that God Himself in Yeshua would be magnified as they walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. He says, I long for you all with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. Here we see that Paul attributes his own love for the believers to whom he ministers as that which is modeled by Yeshua himself, who enables the believer to love in truth. The common idiom in the Hebrew is likewise followed by the Greek. For the Hebrew verb racham carries the sense of to love, to show pity to someone, or to be merciful to someone, and the related noun, believe it or not, recham, means womb or lap. <laughs> now you understand why those of you that may still read the King James Version, or maybe you grew up with the King James Version, it talks about what? Bowels of compassion. Well, that's just a perfect, exact uh, translation of the Greek word, which means... Uh, inward parts of the body or entrails. And that's the word that's used here. He says, with the affection of Messiah. Now, in the Greek, splanknon has the sense of the inward parts of the body, the entrails, which gave rise to the King James Bible to translate bowels of compassion, as I mentioned. But perhaps the best explanation of these terms, why, you know, when you think about the physiology in, in, the, in the Western world, we think in our head, we feel here, kind of, in our heart. This is why, you know, uh, the heart is a, is a symbol of love in our culture. Um, and, and yet, you know, that's all part of our culture. But it was not the culture in which Paul lived. You thought in this area of your, of your body, in your chest, in your heart. And you felt all of your emotions and so forth. Not that the heart was entirely devoid of emotion, but the primary emotions were found lower on, near the lap. Perhaps the best explanation of these terms is the picture of a mother cuddling her baby in her lap with arms wrapped around the infant. While the words used in the biblical text were common and should not be taken too far as to their various meanings, that Paul would speak of the affection of Messiah Yeshua undoubtedly emphasizes the nurturing, careful attendance, and close relationship that occurs between the maturing believer and Yeshua. It is love that is pure and not self-serving, and this is the love that Paul expresses to the believers in Philippi. Indeed, it is this self-giving love for which all in the body of Messiah should strive to know and to give to one another. It is love and affection that is wedded with truth and knowledge, as well as resolve to bring about that which is pleasing to the Lord in everyone's life. And, of course, Yeshua, our Messiah, is the ultimate and eternal pattern of such love. 
So the last two verses that we'll uh, go over briefly tonight, uh, verses 9 through 10, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until, or with a view to, the day of Messiah. Paul now gives the core request for the Philippian believers as he prays for them. Of all the things that might have been considered most important for them, it is interesting to consider what does not head the list. He does not pray that their assembly will grow in numbers, nor that they would be granted protection from those who might stand against them. There's nothing wrong with such prayer. But that's not first and foremost on Paul's mind at this point. Not that these requests would be unworthy of his prayers, but they simply do not hold first position in Paul's mind. This primary request of the apostle for those to whom he ministers is that their love may abound more and more. And that's a very straight translation of the Greek, those of you that uh, uh, read the Greek. Uh, literally is that your love uh, may more and more abound. So abound is put last. The first question to be asked is this. Is the love for which Paul prays their love for God or their love for one another? The obvious answer is that these are inextricably bound together. For when our love for God grows and abounds, then surely we will be far better equipped to love one another with an unfailing love that enables true growth in our spiritual lives and in our outreach to the world. Interesting, Paul uses uh, similar language in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11-12. Now may our God and Father himself and Yeshua our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So here again, he prays that our love would increase and abound in love for one another. Now granted, he was praying there for the community at Thessalonica, but is this not how we should be praying for one another ourselves? It seems quite clear that Paul has the same perspective here in his epistle to the Philippian believers as Gordon Fee notes in his commentary on Philippians many years earlier. Where an existing love also needed some further prodding, Paul prayed similarly for the Thessalonians that their, quote, love might increase and overflow. In that case, he specified the direction of the love for which he prayed, for each other and for everyone else. The linguistic and contextual similarities between these two prayers suggest a similar direction to the love for which he now prays that their love for one another abound all the more a concern that is precisely picked up in chapter 2, verse 2, where we read that you have the same love for one another. So, what is Paul's primary prayer? His primary prayer is that they would learn better how to love each other as God intends. And how is that? To love each other in real knowledge and all discernment. That the NASB translates real knowledge signals the fact that the Greek word Paul uses here is epignosis, which carries the meaning of full knowledge or genuine knowledge. The love that our Savior intends for us to have and to show for one another within the body of Messiah is that which is based upon a genuine knowledge of his word and wisdom regarding the manner in which we express this love to one another. You see, not everyone has the ability to love everyone else in the same way. There are some who have closer relationships, some that have better understanding, and so forth and so on. But together, we are to commit ourselves to each other, to help each other grow, and to become more and more like the Messiah Yeshua. 
What does that mean? That means we have this in our hearts. And it's a word that I think is, is not very well thought of these days. And it's the word commitment. How committed are we to one another in our local communities? Now, some of you may not have a local community, but do you have opportunity to to share with others and to be with others, whether it's uh, just over the Internet or whether it's uh, talking on the telephone or whether it's sending letters to each other or whatever? Do we have a commitment to others to help them grow and walk in the footsteps of the Messiah? And together we work with each other to become more what the Lord wants us to be. That commitment is the very kind of love that Paul's talking about here. The love that our Savior intends for us to have and to show for one another within the body of Messiah is that which is based upon a genuine knowledge of His word and wisdom regarding the manner in which we express this love to one another. Surely, as we grow more and more to know and appreciate the love of God given to us in Messiah Yeshua, we will be enabled to love others as he intends. I suppose, in my opinion, this is one of the, the, the hardest and most difficult things to do, and yet one of the things that time and time again we see in communities that, that just is, is uh, lacking. Surely as we grow more and more to know and appreciate the love of God given to us in Messiah Yeshua, we will be enabled to love others as he intends. You know, Sometimes it's tough love, but love endures, love remains, love does not fail. Such love will be used by him to strengthen our bonds of unity and thus to be a far greater light to the world that lives in darkness. So that you may approve the things that are excellent, the two primary aspects of Paul's prayer for the Philippian community is first, that in being able to approve the things that are excellent, they will individually allow the leading of the Ruach, the Holy Spirit, together with the knowledge of the Scriptures, to make good choices in how they express their love to one another. The word approve, dokimadzein, means to test or examine, to prove by testing, is a word used of testing metals in in, in the Greek culture. This means that as we seek to love one another within our local community of faith, we must also be accepting of advice and counsel. If we are willing to work together, and so, you know, you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes when you go to love somebody, if, you know, it kind of gets thrown back at you like, you know, they're not accepting of your love. Well, what do we learn from that? How do we continue forward? Do we just give up? We say, man, forget it. No. Love continues forward. Just think of the love of Yeshua for us how He continues to bear with us and to prod us and to enable us to become more what He wants. So, if we are willing to work together, we will find advice from others that will enable us to discern the best way to love one another so that we all grow in our lives of faith. And he says, in order to be sincere and blameless. This is the second aspect of Paul's prayer, that the Philippian believers would become more and more conformed to the very person of Yeshua, so that, the, so that they would become the very people he desires them to be. Paul's goal for the Philippians is that they may be people of sincerity, honesty, and cleanliness of mind who live lives that are transparent before God and other people. Sincere, right, without defect, and blameless, seeking forgiveness where that's needed, 
and walking more and more in the footsteps of the Messiah until the day of Messiah. The primary goal for all believers is to persevere until that day when Yeshua returns. It is the return of Messiah to take all believers from every era since the creation of the world to be with Him for all eternity that must strengthen our resolve to serve Him in spirit and in truth. Is it sometimes easy to take our eyes off of that goal? We're so, we're so bound up with the here and now that we lose sight of eternity. But we must have both. We can't just live for eternity without concern for the here and now. Of course not. But when we set our eyes upon His coming, it helps us be reminded of how diligent we must be to function within the body of the Messiah as He intends. As we have our eyes fixed on His return, we are given the courage and the strength to carry on the mission He has given each of us to do in our respective communities, our families, and with our friends. Okay, that's where we'll end for tonight. Thank you again for coming and joining with us in this study of Philippians. I hope it's been a challenge and a blessing to you as it has and it is to me. And look forward to being with you again next week when we continue our study in this epistle of Philippians.